From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, January 13th. Last week, the Utah Wildlife Board updated regulations on black bear hunting across the state. This has been a controversial topic in Grand County since 2018, when two hunters in the LaSalle Mountains were caught abusing a black bear. The hunters used hounds to chase the bear to exhaustion, caged the bear for two days, released it, and then let the hounds chase it again. Since this incident, the Division of Wildlife Resources has made some changes to the rules prohibiting unethical hunting practices. But as KZMU's Emily Arnson reports, the Grand County Commission believes there are still some questionable loopholes in those rules. In 2021, the hunters from the LaSalle incident were acquitted of the felony charges associated with the bear hunt. Grand County Commissioner Trisha Hedin says the hunters couldn't be found guilty because the language in the rules is too vague. Prior to last week's meeting, the county asked that the DWR more clearly define the point at which hunters should end a pursuit to avoid needlessly exhausting and terrifying these animals. You know, a pursuit is you run your hounds for training and you run them until they're at bay is the terminology. And so at bay means at a point when they can no longer escape. You know, a clarification in the rule that we asked for is if we had to define at bay for individuals, then we need to define at bay if they do not understand what that means. If we state, you know, running to the point of exhaustion until they're ledged out, till they're treed. No updates to the definition of at bay were made during last week's meeting, but the DWR's Darren DeBluis says they plan to revise this rule in the future. The intent of the rule would be after that first pursuit when the bear trees that they're done. They need to take their dogs and, and head back. So our rule does say that, but we're just going to look and make sure that that's, that's clear enough. One change the DWR did make was to prohibit the use of chocolate and bait. Chocolate is toxic to bears and other animals. We haven't seen an issue in Utah. New Hampshire had four bears die in close proximity to a bait that was had a lot of chocolate. I think it might have been exclusively chocolate. And I think Michigan saw some bear cubs die and some foxes. So we haven't seen anything here, but we had some concerns. The spring black bear hunting season begins in the LaSalle's on April 1st. For KZMU News, I'm Emily Ernson. Tuesday marked the inauguration of the Navajo Nation's new president, vice president, and tribal council members. As Rocky Mountain Community Radio's Clark Adamitis reports, both the incoming and outgoing presidents emphasized the importance of public health in recent statements. 36-year-old Boo Nigren has never held political office before being elected president last November. He campaigned on promises to bring utility services to tens of thousands of Navajo Nation residents who currently have none. At a ceremony in Fort Defiance, Arizona on Tuesday, Nigren reiterated those promises. Let's get basic services to the Navajo people. We need water. We need roads. We need broadband. We need better public safety. So as your next Navajo Nation president, I will not hesitate. My decisions will always be very simple. Does this move our nation forward? Does this get out of third world poverty conditions? If yes, so be it. Let's go. In an energized campaign, Nigren beat incumbent and outgoing president Jonathan Nez. Nez released remarks last week about leading tribal members through the pandemic. In a written statement, Nez said, quote, We have to remember that together we pushed back on this modern day monster by taking precautions, protecting ourselves and others, and through prayer, unquote. 
From December 29th to January 4th, the Navajo Department of Health reported 141 new COVID-19 cases and three COVID deaths. The pandemic's death toll on the Navajo Nation is nearing 2,000 people. I'm Clark Adamitis. Many people in our region have a Basque heritage. Their relatives came here decades ago from the mountains in France and Spain, mainly to work as shepherds. Now, a discovery about the Basque language has rocked this community here and across the world. Julie Luqueta with Boise State Public Radio reports. It was found in the ruins of a castle in Pamplona in the heart of Basque country. The artifact is an engraved bronze hand turned bluish-green through oxidation. There are five words etched into it, one of which is recognizable to modern Basque speakers. That word is sorioneku, um, which would translate roughly as of good fortune or of good omen. How do you pronounce your name in Basque? In Basque, Edurne Arostegui. Arostegui is the education specialist at the Basque Museum in Boise. She says the discovery of the hand, called Mano de Irulegi, has brought a ton of joy and pride to the community. I have a lot of family and friends in the Basque country. I live there and my phone blew up. I mean, everybody was just ecstatic. They're ecstatic because the hand is the oldest example of written Basque ever found. It dates back to 72 years before Christ, proving modern Basque ancestors lived in the region almost a thousand years earlier than previously thought. And it's one more clue in understanding the history of the Basque language. I think most people would think it's some kind of mixture of Spanish and French, but it predates into European languages. I am John Beter. I'm a professor in the history department at Boise State and study Basque immigration. Beter explains Basque is indigenous and a language isolate, meaning it evolved without any influence from other languages. Basque speakers were long thought to be illiterate. What it does is it takes our, our idea of early languages and sometimes early civilizations as being this kind of caveman or kind of right early rudimentary language that are very simple, and it just dumps it on its head. Scholars have tried to link Basque to Hungarian, Georgian, Etruscan, and even Japanese, but are still baffled by it. Es un misterio. Professor Javier Velasa says the origin of the language is a mystery. He is one of the linguists analyzing the writing on the hand. Speaking from his office in Barcelona, he says the word etched into it is the first example of written Basque found in modern-day Basque country, which is actually not a nation-state, but exists inside both northern Spain and parts of southern France. DNA studies have suggested Basques are descendants of Neolithic farmers whose identity survived the back-and-forth of territorial aggression from European invaders over millennia. Arostegui again. The word that we have for ourselves is the people who have Basque, in other words, the people who speak Basques. During the Franco dictatorship, the Basque language was criminalized. So from 1939 to 1975, you could not use it in public. You would be fined. You couldn't name your children. My name would have been illegal, right? You could not name your child Edurne. It was kept alive in remote villages and inside people's homes spoken in secret and taught to children clandestinely in church basements. I always point out that it's thanks to the diaspora that a lot of these elements are still around because no one ever banned Basque here in Boise. There are about 3 million Basque people in the original Basque region and no clear numbers for the diaspora. It's thought that about a third of Basque people speak it today, or around three-quarters to a million people around the world. 
Idaho has one of the largest concentrations of Basques in the U.S. Back in Spain, Vanessa says he's not surprised by the public's reaction because the object itself is iconic and the message it carries is one of warmth. And Basque Twitter, yes, that's a thing, has been putting out memes left and right. The hand has been blowing up WhatsApp threads, and a song about it on YouTube has already gotten 50,000 views. Could you imagine seeing a hieroglyphic and just being able to read it from your present language? Like, that is how it felt for me. Just connecting to somebody 2,000 years ago is a once-in-a-lifetime sort of moment. The hand is still being analyzed and will likely go on display at the Pamplona Museum sometime in the future. Julie Duqueta, Boise State Public Radio News. The Moab City Council was in session this week. So, what happened at the what meeting? What happened, happened at the meeting? What happened at the meeting? Whatever happened, what happened at, the at the meeting? What uh, exactly happened at the meeting? Maggie McGuire of the Moab Sun News answers. At this week's Moab City Council meeting, officials supported a proposal to rebuild a little under a mile of Cane Creek Boulevard. The city will seek over $8 million in funds from the State Community Impact Board for the project, which will totally replace the deteriorated section of road, updating the sewer and drainage, building sidewalks that comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act, and laying down a road top without the potholes locals have become accustomed to. Moab Police Chief Jared Garcia also gave an update on planned trainings for Moab police officers scheduled for 2023. And that's what happened at this week's Moab City Council meeting. This exercise in civics is a collaboration between the Moab Sun News and KZMU News. You can watch local government meetings on YouTube. Find them under Moab City and Grand County, Utah. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. It's been a couple weeks since we've done our weekly newsreel. And in that time, some big news hit the community. Law enforcement ended their investigation into the 2021 double homicide of Crystal Turner and Kylan Schulte. Sophia Fisher of The Times Independent has more. Yeah, in the, the waning days of last year, so it was, I think, December 29th, I want to say, the Grand County Sheriff's Office formally closed um, the investigation into the double homicide of Crystal Turner and Kylan Schulte, which... of I'm sure everybody knows about it, really rocked the community back in August of 2021. The investigation had been going on essentially since then, so for, you know, something like 18 months. Um, And they formally closed the investigation and in so doing gave a presentation detailing the strength of their case against suspect Adam Pinkusowetz, who was a former co-worker of Turner's at McDonald's and um, actually took his own life about a month after the homicide. So, they closed the case because they were unable to, you know, press charges yeah. against this deceased suspect. What was interesting in the presentation is that the presenter said that they felt that, you know, they do have enough evidence if this case had ever had a chance to go to trial to get a guilty verdict. Correct. Yeah. Um, I think it was Det- Detective Carrie Rigby with the Unified Police Department did say that she felt they all felt the evidence was strong enough that they could could have convicted Pinkusowetz. Now, you were there at the meeting. Was there any standout moments to you? during that presentation. I think so, especially because there there had been so little information released to the community about this man before the presentation. I mean, there were some very interesting, strong pieces of evidence that they did have. Um, if I remember correctly, um, a gun that was registered in Pinkusowitz's name, they found the receipt had been 
previously determined as one of the guns most likely to have have um, been used to shoot the two women. In addition, um, several of the bullets at the crime scene matched matched a bullet that Pinkusiewicz used to take his own life. Mm. So guns and bullets were matching up. Um, mm-hmm. They saw footage of a car identical to Pinkusiewicz's entering, essentially, or driving near the crime scene both before and after the crime. Mm-hmm. And in addition, they actually... I think one of the most startling moments um, of the presentation for me is when they talked about the man's significant other, mm-hmm. who they did not name, you know, that person had been cleared as a suspect, but mm-hmm. they'd gotten in touch with a significant other. And apparently this man said, I know why you're here. And the investigator said, well, why is that? And he said, because Adam killed two people in Utah. So allegedly Pinkusowitz had actually confessed to the crime to a significant other before taking his own life. So mm-hmm. all of those pieces of evidence, I think, were, were very startling um, and, and very interesting and hopefully will help provide a sense of closure, I think, with the closure of this case to the community. Well, thank you for going through that and highlighting that article in last week's edition of the Times Independent, and you can find it online. And I would encourage people to watch the presentation if they want more details, too. Definitely. A lot of information there. All right. Moving on to um, this week's edition of the Times Independent. Um, tell us what's on your front page. You've got a big, beautiful photo here. I know. I was kind of impressed that the story took up this much space on front page. <laughs> um, but Doug took a great photo of Mill Creek Canyon. Anywho, um, <laughs> good news on the waterfront, which we always like to be writing about. Moab and Utah, more generally, have received tons of precipitation over the last few weeks and the last month. Um, we're kind of getting the splashback. Um, for lack of a better term, from that atmospheric river that's hitting California. Um, and as a result, snowpack is very high, and there are very high hopes for really good runoff in the spring, too, which could provide, you know, a boon to the waterways and reservoirs throughout the state. So really exciting news. I'm sure this begs the question of our, our long-term drought. Tell us what you found out there. Sure. So short-term drought is essentially gone. Long-term drought absolutely persists. Okay. Um, I spoke with John Meyer, um, who is the assistant state climatologist at the uh, Utah Climate Center. And he said, you know, we couldn't write a better script. He was very excited, of course, about about this news. But he, of course, added that one year is not going to turn the tables mm-hmm. on the long term drought in Utah and the Southwest more broadly. So that is definitely still an ongoing issue. It would take, you know, he said there's no historical precedent for the type of water year we would need to pull us out of the long term drought. Um, yeah, definitely an important distinction to be made here, I guess. Right. OK, so there's some data in this piece. Some numbers of people are interested. Anyone that stood out to you in particular? Yeah, um, our snow water equivalent up in the LaSalle's, which is essentially, you know, if you melted the snow up there, how much water would come out of that? The snow water equivalent is at 222% of normal for this time of year. Jordan Clayton of the National Resources Conservation Service says it's right up against the highest observations they have for the state in like 40 years of data. Wow, that's incredible. Okay, cool. All right. So more on this in this week's edition of the Times Independent. Anything else to say about this piece, though, Sophia? Yeah. um, One interesting thing that I'm learning about as I learn more about hydrology and how it works is Mm -hmm. we had a pretty good monsoon season this past summer. And, you know, that monsoon season doesn't provide a ton of moisture overall, but it performs a really crucial hydrologic service by increasing soil moisture. So when you have high soil moisture going into snowpack season or going into the spring, rather, that means that more of the snowpack is going to turn into runoff instead of just being absorbed into the soil. Interesting. Because if it's dry, the soil is just going to absorb all of it, which has happened before. But because the soil is already fairly wet because of a monsoon season, that means that much more of the snow is is going to turn into water running downstream, which is really interesting. Moving on, um, there's an article in the Times Independent about Cane Creek. What is going on over here? 
Yeah, Moab City is pursuing nearly $8 million in grant and loan funding to improve or rather reconstruct a one-mile stretch of Cane Creek Boulevard from its intersection with Highway 191 through its intersection with 500 West. All right, so they're um, working on a reconstruction project. You know, can you give us some background on this story? You know, why was this considered in the first place? Sure. So that stretch of Cane Creek, first of all, it's a very major artery, you know, not only to access recreational trails, but also just for for locals, too, if you're, you know, trying to get to 500 West, that's kind of a, a parallel route to Main Street. And that section is, I don't want to say a mess, but it definitely has some serious issues, according to city engineer Chuck Williams. Mm. Serious drainage and uh, sewer issues, pavements and sidewalks that are buckling or cracked or non-existent, mm-hmm. um, and insufficient places and unsafe places for pedestrians to cross. So a whole gamut of issues. I mean, Williams actually said it, it would essentially be reconstructing the whole thing. It's not just like a coat of new pavement or anything like that, but it requires really serious, like, structural uh, reconstruction. Okay, so the city needs some funds to do that. Um, And where are they in the process right now? They're in the process of submitting an application. So actually, at Tuesday's city council meeting, um, councillors workshopped some of the application language um, in advance of its submission to the Community Impact Board Fund. The $8 million request is split about 50-50 between an ask for a grant fund, about $4 million, and an ask for about a $4 million loan as well. It feels like there are construction projects all over Moham City lately <laughs> between the waterline replacements that are going on right now. And then, of course, this infrastructure improvement will be um, a huge project in the future mm-hmm. if, if it's funded. Absolutely. You know, city councilors had some really interesting comments to make about some of the verbiage in the grant application. Um, there was some language talking about how Keene Creek is an important artery for residents, but also for visitors and for tourists, mm-hmm. and some language that kind of seeped into bypass language. So I think a lot of city councilors requested that be removed or changed because, you know, the bypass issue has come up many times before. And there are certainly, you know, issues if you're going to start redirecting Main Street traffic through Keene Creek and 500 West. So. Right. Some interesting commentary there, I think. Okay. All right. More information, of course, in the Times Independent. And before you go, Sophia, I'm hoping you could mention um, some tales of trails that have been going on in the paper. This involves a trip that you did down the Grand Canyon. Yes, I was lucky enough to join a Grand Canyon trip in November slash December. If you didn't see many bylines from me at that time, that's why. <laughs> and, and Doug did an incredible job holding the paper down. I got to give him a shout out. Um, yeah, so I've been working on a four-part series called A Grand Adventure, just kind of detailing my time down there. Um, I was not rowing, to be clear. I, I was a passenger, although I hopped on the oars a bit, but still an incredible experience and, and so lucky to have shared it with a group of really awesome people, including several other Moabites. So yeah, a little shout out for that. So this series kind of follows your trip down the Grand Canyon. Did you take a journal with you? I did journal. I ended up, I've been flipping back through it and most of that is just very logistical details like where we <laughs> camped and what rapids we ran mm-hmm. and some just interesting description. So it's like a captain's log. <laughs> yeah, almost. So I'm operating half off memory and, and half off that journal. Right. I mean, this week is part three. So part three is this week and part four is next week. Um, do you have any teasers for an exciting conclusion? Um, we all made it out safe without <laughs> flipping or getting injured. So that's about as much as you could ask for. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. This week, Moab Police Chief Jared Garcia outlined his training agenda for officers in 2023. Allison Harford of the Moab Send News explains. 
As we know, Police Chief Jared Garcia was hired spring last year, and since then he's been doing this huge overhaul of the department, especially because when he was hired, um, there was a lot of like turmoil in the department and a lot of high turnover mm. and not a lot of officers. And so he's been coming to city council meetings pretty regularly to give an update kind of at where he's at. Um, and this week on Tuesday, he presented kind of his training plan to the city council. And what does it look like? Yeah. So all new hires will start with a two week, 80 hour um, in-house training to review things like department and city policies, proper use of technology and vehicle operations. And new officers will also have this time to introduce themselves to the community. And then after that, they'll go through 400 hours of field training. But any lateral hires, which means officers who are hired from other police departments, um, can abbreviate this training based on previous experience. And then each month, uh, officers will go through a number of trainings. There's at least two every month. So Jared Garcia outlined a couple of those. Like in January, officers will go through trainings, including autism spectrum disorder training, arrest control, and mental health and crisis intervention. Um, in February, topics include search and seizure, search warrants, and de-escalation. Mm -hmm. And in March, the topics include traffic investigations and enforcement and emergency vehicle operation. And then officers will also conduct an active shooter drill at local schools in March. Okay, so training is something that the community and even other officers have called for before. Was that addressed? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so Councilmember Kalen Jones pointed out that um, law enforcement has kind of, as he said it, bled over into the political realm in recent years. And so Jones asked if there's going to be a dialogue between the police department and city staff, especially because... The police department is working on this overhaul of their entire policy manual, which is mm. where this training element fits in. And so they're doing it all in-house, which means that their own staff are going over and rewriting this policy manual. But Jared Garcia did say mm. that he is going to talk to city staff about more complex policies like sexual assault investigations or use of force, like when is it appropriate to use use of force. And so he's going to be chatting with and getting the suggestions from city staff. Anything else to pull out of that meeting or the presentation itself? Yeah, so Garcia said they hope to train as much as possible with other organizations, which includes law enforcement partners and also community organizations like the Moab Valley Multicultural Center. And there's more in the Moab Sun news, and you got to speak with a scientist for this week's edition. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I went out to one of Brooke Osborne's field sites. Um, Osborne's research concerns the carbon cycle in dryland ecosystems, and she'll be discussing it at the next Science Moab on Tap on January 18th. What did you guys talk about, and what did you see in the field? This specific field site that we went out to um, is in the Sand Flats Recreation Area, and it's a small area of square plots which is part of the Worldwide Disturbance and Resources Across Global Grasslands Network. And so at the field site, Osborne studies what happens to dryland ecosystems when they're altered by forces like tillers, grazing, and nutrient application. Mm. So really she's looking into um, like what will happen to these landscapes. And she said it's really important to study dryland ecosystems because 
They make up over 40% of the Earth's land surface, according to the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Um, And if you haven't guessed by now, Moab and its surrounding areas are classified as a dryland ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so these landscapes are criminally understudied, Osborne said, and she's trying to change that. So the science that she's doing at these half a dozen field sites she oversees in Moab help her to answer questions about the carbon cycle and those answers can be used on regional and global scales so like what she's doing in sand flats can be used regionally because she's studying how like nutrient application will affect these landscapes and she's found she's finding that in her plots with more nutrients added there's a lot more invasive plants which you can kind of guess but as a scientist and when you're talking to policymakers like she is it really helps to have like the hard data to back this up right. and so this science that she's doing just at this small little site in sand flats can help people to understand how they can better treat a landscape especially when they're in a situation where maybe they have to apply nutrients to the landscape. But then also her research can be used at a global scale because it's really helping to um, create more accurate ecosystem models. So like when we model what climate change effects could look like, right. um, we don't know a lot about dryland ecosystems. And so any data that she collects can help those models. So this field site, how big is it? Yeah, so it's not that big. This specific one is just five um, five by five meter plots and each plot has a different um, like physical altercation to it and mm-hmm. so there's one control plot and then the others some of them were tilled and some of them have these nutrient applications and so and it's like a difference between long term and short term um, some of them were completely wiped out mm-hmm. and they're just seeing what plants grow at all right. and so this site is in its third year the network that it's part of is global and so all these different researchers have set up the exact same site and the exact same altercations at all plots and so um, it really helps these researchers to directly compare different ecosystems to each other Oh, I wonder if they're getting like similar or different data. Yeah. And Osborne was also saying that a lot of carbon cycling research um, is being done like in tropical forests. They're kind of the poster child of carbon cycling. Mm-hmm. But those ecosystems only make up 7% of the land surface, unlike mm-hmm. 40%, which is dry lands. And right. so mm-hmm. what she's also studying is like she's taking soil samples and seeing kind of where carbon in our atmosphere is being stored and also what happens to that storage when the land landscape is altered. Osborne is, of course, going to be talking at Science Moab on tap. Yeah, so she'll be discussing this research that she's been doing on carbon cycling at Science Moab on tap on January 18th. Um, And I talked to Christina Young about it also, and Young said that this won't be another depressing climate change talk. (laughs) It'll just help people understand what carbon is and how it's related to the desert. Neat. And finally, there's one more piece that I'm hoping you could talk about in the Moab's and News, Allie. Yeah, so um, if you go to the mark this month, there's a new exhibit on display, and it's called The Creativity of Life, and displays art done by Grand County High School students. There was an opening reception last week that I attended so that I could chat with some of the artists. And so there's a ton of different art that's on display at this exhibit. Um, I chatted with Catherine Moore and Krista Green. Uh, Catherine Moore is the multimedia teacher at the high school, and Krista Green is the art and ceramics teacher. And they both said that they wanted to create this exhibit to 
just spotlight the students and give them an opportunity to hang their art in the community. So some of the work that students have on display is um, works that were created during class, um, and it's displaying work from students of all grade levels with all mediums. There's like a small part of the exhibit that shows off um, the different ways that students interpreted drawing a bike wheel, but then there's also a lot of like portraits and paintings and sketches and block prints that students have created on their own. Um, just for fun. And you got to talk to a few of the students, you know, any impressions from them? I talked to a student named Natalie um, and she has a few works in the exhibit. Her favorite is a block print that she called It's Watching Me, which depicts a Victorian woman sitting on a pair of binoculars as another figure who's depicted on this Roman style column looks at her. Mm. Um, And so Natalie said she really likes these two iconographies, like from the Victorian era and Roman iconography. And so this piece was made during a class project project in which students were instructed to make a collage from books and magazines and then sketch it out and as she developed her project um she like worked with her teachers to help her kind of put everything together and make it make a little bit of sense and then she turned it into a block print which she said she really loved she is a senior and she's planning on studying art history in college so she can continue learning about art And she also wants to incorporate a fine arts like minor into that so that she can keep doing art as well. Oh, neat. So these are students or this student in particular really does want to continue art in her life. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And the art is like extraordinary. I think Mm. it's really astounding what these students have been able to do. Allison Harford, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. And that's it for the Weekly Newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU Community Powered Radio.